for the next uh, several weeks, I'll, in the guided meditations, I'll emphasize calm or these first eight instructions from the mindfulness of breathing, the Buddhist mindfulness of breathing instructions, because as those of you who've been practicing for a while know well, insight, seeing things that we haven't seen before about the mind, the heart, those insights arise quite naturally when the mind is steady and calm. Because, let's just call it neurotic activity, which so much of the activity of the mind is, is in stark contrast to the quiet, peaceful, clear, bright mind. So it's just so much easier to see the arising of worry, the arising of fear or greed or aversion, and all the different ways that those qualities are expressing themselves in our mind. When from this base of quiet and clarity and brightness, that activity just stands out for what it is, impersonal, impermanent, and suffering or stressful whenever we take it personally. And this is the, sort of really points to the wisdom teachings. So as nice as tranquility is in and of itself, its real uh, benefit is how it naturally, organically leads to insight. And then insight naturally is integrated. So how we are in the world, how we see and understand, how we respond and engage, then that is just wiser, more skillful. So we live life with fewer waves, you know, like stealing, taking things that aren't ours, complicating life in ways that it doesn't need to be complicated, that doesn't help anybody. So I'll, um, I'll put on our webpage the sutta, because it's pretty straightforward, these 16 instructions that the Buddha has. And then uh, Caleb, who um, manages the audio team for us, a wonderful service, volunteer service that he does. By the way, he also leads um, one of the co-leaders of the Mindfulness and Depression community group, in case you're interested. But Caleb will be getting the talks and the guided meditations up on our webpage. So if you want to re-listen to the instructions a few times, if you're new to the mindfulness of breathing instructions. So I just covered the first eight instructions, which have more to do with calm. And then the second half have more to do with the insight side of practice. Any questions about the guided meditation before we go on? I'm also doing this in the weekly practice groups for probably another month or two. So you'll get some guided meditations there if you ever come on Sunday or Wednesdays. So I thought tonight um, I talk a little bit about path and then just um, the general shape of this eightfold path that the Buddha described or, or articulated in his teachings.
with some interesting discourses um, that help us get a sense of what the Buddha meant by path. And one in particular that I, I like This is the image the Buddha uses. It's just as if a person traveling along a wilderness track were to see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled by people of former times. One would follow it. Following it, one would see an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by people of former, former times, complete with parks, groves, and ponds, walled and delightful. One would go to address the king or queen saying, you should know that while traveling along a wilderness track, I saw an ancient path. I followed it. I saw an ancient city, an ancient capital, complete with parks and groves and ponds, walled and delightful. Rebuild that city. And then the king or queen would rebuild the city so that by at a later date, the city would become powerful, rich, well-populated, fully grown and prosperous. In the same way, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times. And what is that ancient path? Just this noble eightfold path. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I followed that path. Following, following it, I came to direct knowledge. Direct knowledge of aging and death. Direct knowledge of the origination. Aging and death is uh, um, the same as suffering or the stress, being ill at ease that we all experience in life. So direct knowledge of this stress, this dukkha. Direct knowledge of the pain leading. Direct knowledge of the path, rather, leading to the cessation of the stress. I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of birth, becoming, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the six sense gates, name and form, consciousness, direct knowledge of the origination of consciousness, direct knowledge of the cessation of consciousness, direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of consciousness. I followed that path. So basically it's the path of using the mind to understand the mind, or using the heart to understand the heart. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of fabrications, the constructions of our mind. Direct knowledge of the origination of these fabrications. Direct knowledge of the cessation of these fabrications. Direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of fabrications. Knowing that directly, I have revealed it to others so that this holy life has become powerful, rich, detailed, well-populated, widespread, proclaimed among beings. So the important thing here with that teaching is what the Buddha came to understand about his mind is something that other people had come to understand. But, and then in the past, before the time of the Buddha, you know, at least traditionally, it's understood that there were other people who had seen that path and were able to articulate it, to talk about it, you know, go tell the king or 
go tell other people, hey, there's there's this ancient place. Let's develop it. This would be good for us. So, in the Buddhist tradition, a Buddha is somebody who discovers that path and can articulate it in a way that other people can find the same thing. So developing it means that we have a set of teachings that make it easy. I mean, can you imagine, especially those who've been at it for a while, can you imagine growing up in this culture not having come into contact with these or similar teachings to have the kind of clarity and interest that you currently have about the mind? It's very unlikely without the roadmaps, this articulation of the Buddha, that we'd actually begin to look at the mind, investigate the mind the way that some of us have done over the years. Because it's not just about being interested. There are a lot of things we're interested in, but we can't really unpack. It's not so easy to unpack experience unless we, it's like the lens the framework that drives or that supports the investigation is important. Because otherwise, you know how it works. The view that we have reconfirms what we think is true. We usually find, what we find is usually governed by how we look. So, you know, whatever problem, you know, this is, People always kid about Thanksgiving and Christmas and going home and being with your relatives that you normally don't see too much. And, uh, you know, it's interesting culturally that a lot of those people, it's always surprising and refreshing when we connect with someone we haven't seen in several years and they're like a different human being. Like they're not seeing things the same way they've always seen things. You kind of expect them to be this kind, have this view about life or politics or whatever, and something has shifted. Because normally what we find is something hasn't shifted. The way someone saw the world is the way they see it, the world now. And unfortunately, that's often true for ourselves. You know, the way we see things is the way we used to see things. Even though we may feel like we're open-minded or that we're curious, but when we hear, and now even more so because the kind of information, we're, we have so many more options to just look at the information that already is going to confirm our points of views. This is one of the benefits of sitting down, even though you know it's a relatively homogeneous group, but just sitting down and hearing another person talk about their mind and really practicing receiving that in a more open, unfiltered way is very, this is what I meant, it's so transforming and normalizing about our mind to hear different people talk about it. So the Buddha was pretty adamant, you know, as much as we can tell from the recorded discourses about this Eightfold path. It's not so much his eightfold path, but he didn't see beings becoming more free, more loving, more wise without engaging 
this path. So what does he mean by this path? What do we mean by path? I think one word that's useful is the word purification. Like one way uh, we talk about the Eightfold Path or the three sections of the Eightfold Path. So some of you haven't been in the previous courses last spring and last summer when we looked at the part of the path that's about virtue or ethical conduct. And in the summer we looked at the part of the path that's about samadhi or concentration. And you can think of each of the three parts of the path, wisdom or discernment, virtue, ethical conduct or integrity, and samadhi or concentration, or the steadiness of the mind, cultivating the steadiness of mind. We can think, it's useful to think of these three parts of the path, again, not in a Buddhist sense, but in a basic human common sense way that we as human beings, our mind or our heart, it needs to be purified. It has some contaminants that have snuck in through culture, through whatever kind of cultural or genetic influences. There are these tendencies that aren't helpful in terms of being free, being unafraid, being, uh, you know, not caught by the ups and downs of life, not imprisoned by expectations or desire. So we need to purify some things. We need to purify how we act in the world. We need to purify our mind itself, like the activity of our mind. I'm sure you've noticed that some of the activity in our mind is impure, not helpful, counterproductive, frustrating. And the most subtle thing, the most subtle purification is the purification of view, which of course is an aspect of the mind. So we're purifying the, like with view, it's the the latent tendencies to come back, like to, like ignorance has its own life, its own coherence, it sort of coheres. And we may, you know, under positive influences, being around people who, you know, have a lot of wisdom, not so afraid, not so greedy, a lot of natural generosity, a lot of natural kindness, being close, hanging out with those kinds of people, we might find a way to be more free and less encumbered by our habit energies, less tied down or imprisoned by our habits. But then they, you know, we're no longer with those people and we're in a different scene with different influences and then different things happen. Like this is so shocking for people who go on retreats and especially longer retreats and things settle down and it's so easy to abandon bad habits when we're in that really wholesome container supported by the community, supported by the structure of the retreat. And then we go home and and it really feels because what sometimes we realize in retreat, the sort of activity of the mind and the expression of the mind and heart and the expression of our actions in the world are so 
relatively speaking, so wholesome and beautiful. And there can be this misunderstanding that this is the new me. And the old me has been slain. It's dead. It's gone. And we have this erroneous idea that my life will be forever changed. Which then, of course, it's very, it can be very painful when we see those old habits reasserting themselves. This is a, actually, instead of a problem, this is a powerful teaching of anatta, the impersonal nature. Goodness is impersonal. Like to think that I'm now good is a misunderstanding. The goodness that expresses itself in time, at times in our life, being really skillful or really clear, really wise, really patient or whatever that goodness might look like. It isn't personal. It's just the natural expression of those causes and conditions that are there, that are active in that moment. And when those supporting causes and conditions aren't active, well, then something else will naturally and impersonally express itself. So we need to understand this about the mind, about the heart. So we're purifying, and the view is the most subtle, we're purifying the latent tendencies towards self-centered drama, towards selfing, or having self-view, seeing things from this self-view, this sense of being apart, being the one who's apart, being the one who has needs, who has fears. It's not, a, it's not wrong to have need or fear, but to construct the idea of a somebody who owns those needs and fears, who's invested or identified with the needs and fears, that creates the ground for suffering. So with the purification of view, which is what this course is about, we're purifying the latent tendencies to take things personally. That's really at the heart of wisdom, is we're taking up some trainings, some reflections or contemplations or ways of experiencing, ways of seeing experience that uproot wrong view. So in Buddhism, right view, which is another a synonym for wisdom, right view is the uprooting of wrong view. Instead of right view being like this philosophical statement, this is the truth, Right view is better understood as the uprooting or the putting down, the going beyond wrong view, self-view, or taking things personally. Invested in this idea that it's personal. Good is personal, like, as I mentioned, being on retreat or good conditions, supporting conditions, and you're just naturally happy, naturally at ease, naturally kind and loving, naturally accepting what comes your way. Taking that personally is the cause for suffering. There's nothing that we can take personally without suffering. In the previous courses, we uprooted the sort of transgressive, we worked on purifying the transgressive, transgressive tendencies to act out our greed or act out our anger. So we purify that by studying the reality of cause and effect, like 
when I act out my anger, this is how the world turns out for me. And I don't like that. So I'm going to refrain from acting out my anger. I'm going to refrain from acting out my neediness in these unskillful ways. I'm going to refrain from acting out my stinginess. I'm going to refrain from... So it's all of the purification involves a kind of heat. And this can be confusing because a lot of times in Buddhism we think of the practice as being the most natural, organic thing. And, and there are times in our practice when it really seems really the most natural thing, the most easy thing to be skillful. But that's when we've already set in motion a lot of wholesome habit energy. But when what's in motion is a lot of unwholesome habit energy, then we really understand the idea of the heat of purification. Or in yoga, you know, they use that word tapas sometimes, that burning. Hold the pose. (laughs) So it's the same thing like when we take up these contemplations, these wisdom practices, there's going to be a little burning. It's not going to feel right. What feels right is to take things from a, to see things in a self-centered way. That feels right. You know, that it's personal. When good things happen, it's personal. When bad things happen, it feels personal. So to train in non-clinging to that idea it's personal, to train the mind to see things as an impersonal unfolding, an impersonal movement of cause and effect or causes and conditions, it will feel like a little burning. We have to work at it initially because it's not the habit of the mind. That's why it's a training. We're not following the habits of the mind because then we'll just get more of the same. We're training the mind in a different direction. We're hearing the information for however good it is, this, you know, whatever we have left of the Buddhist teachings or maybe more generally, whatever we have left of people who really know what they're talking about, who directly realize a state of freedom, the mind unencumbered with afflictive emotions, and their articulation We hear that, we get that information, their articulation of their experience of how, how they understand the mind. And then we do our best to take that information and to activate it in our own mind. So, this brings us back to the idea of, well, what is path, this eightfold path? But let's, don't, don't confuse it with eightfold or three sections or any sections, but to have a sense of the path being something that's here, internal, not external, not something we're getting, but the information is activating something that's here, and it's an interactive process, and it's a messy interactive process. I remember back in the early 80s when I first got interested in uh, Buddhism and meditation, I was working at a consulting firm, management consulting firm in Washington, D.C., trying to pay off my student debt. And uh, and I got really uh, enlivened by the teachings and just had some powerful insights and really saw this as 
what I wanted to do. So I thought I'd become a school teacher because I'd have my summers free to practice. And I didn't realize how hard it was. Um, but anyway, I went to UC Berkeley. They had a one-year training program to become an educator. And I, in that, somewhere in that program, I read um, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which back then um, was a sort of a, made a big splash. I'm sure some of you read it at some point in your college days or graduate school days. And uh, Paulo Freire was, a, I think, Brazilian um, Marxist scholar, educator. And I think he sort of got some of his ideas teaching illiterate um, adults in Brazil. And really was interested in the stickiness of the oppressed uh, mentality or the colonized mentality and how how do you transform that and a lot of the way education was understood at the time was I think he called it like a banking model where outside forces you know fill up the empty piggy bank you know give information and then that person is transformed and his understanding was much more dynamic and this sort of this uh, internal dynamic where information theory is given, but then someone's got to practice with it, work with it. And that's the same dynamic that we have to do. We have to bring something alive. Freedom is a potential, and it, it needs some ingredients from the outside, but then there's this sort of stewing process we call practice. And so, especially with this course, part of that stewing process is keeping, keep bringing the teachings, the idea in, challenging the status quo of, like, of our internal mentality, which is, in a funny way, in an internal way, is this experience of oppression. We are oppressed by the values that we have internalized and are unquestioned in our minds. Like the the idea the, of being separate or the idea of not being good enough or being better than others. All these silent, the silent programming basically of the mind. And what the information, the teachings we receive, what they do is they Contrast, like we, we see the programming because of the contrast. And then we can see something about the programming. That it's just programming. That it's not self. And that's this, you know, those are the steps towards liberation. We actually have to see the activity of the mind. How the mind views or sees the world. So we basically have two tools. One is, to really calm the mind down. Because as I mentioned after the guided sit, the quieter the mind is, the more the mind is able to realize the inner peace of having put down the world of thinking, basically. Because thinking, the mind identified with concepts, caught in concepts, it fragments one's experience. It's not a holistic experience. So when we take up trainings that calm the mind, 
then there's a more holistic experience. Holistic experience is in, in inherently pleasant in an internal way. It's pleasing. It's calming. It's joyful. It's easeful. It's quieting. This shows up, this, um, as I mentioned, is a contrast to the rougher, more agitated expression of the programming of the thinking mind. And then the other way, the other tool, is the Buddha's articulation or our teacher's articulation of right view. Like, it's just causes and conditions coming and going. There's no center anywhere. Even the thought, no, no, this is happening to me, is just the thought being known. Any tension we feel in the body that we normally interpret as personal is just sensation. No matter how nudgy that feeling in your heart or your gut or your jaw, how personal it might feel, it's just sensation being known. So these kinds of teachings sort of challenge and it this is the heat that we sometimes feel in this uh, in this work that we do. So we want to think of awareness practice both because of its capacity to calm the mind down. We're using mindfulness with the breath, for example. Of course, there are many other ways. But mindfulness of the breath to, as a skillful means to put down the world of this and that, good and bad, tomorrow, yesterday, me and you. We can't have a continuity of awareness with the breathing process and be obsessing, right? So this is the purification of mind. This is what we studied for those of you who were in the summer program when we studied samadhi. This is the purification of mind. We're purifying the mind of, a, of its obsessive tendencies to worry, to plan, to think, to fantasize, to wonder, to compare, to analyze. Of course, a lot of this thinking activity is quite useful in life, but it's powerfully liberating to learn at times how to put it down. It doesn't mean that we don't value thinking. It just means there is such a powerful discovery that we can actually put it down and notice the healing that comes when the experience is holistic because the identification with ideas isn't fragmenting one's experience into good and bad, this and that, me and you, yesterday and today. These concepts make it appear as if this is not whole. But there's only this ultimately isn't fragmented or divided. And when the mind realizes that, it goes quiet. Because it's found what it's actually been looking for. We're not actually looking for a bigger TV screen or a, a nicer car or a better partner or a healthier body. As much as it seems like that's that would make us happy, one of those things would make us happy. What the heart is really looking for is the release of wrong view. 
that creates the sense that somebody needs something. It's the dropping that idea. So mindfulness, just the the coming together of wisdom and awareness, what we call our basic practice. Mindfulness is both used as a technical word pointing to this capacity to track experience, but we also use it more generally as a synonym for the path of practice, where we're bringing together wisdom and the steady attention, the continuity of awareness. Is the universal solvent, it really breaks apart wrong view. Wrong view can't be sustained. Because of the right, the, the new information and the calming effect, which reveals how unworkable, unsustainable, unpalatable wrong view is. It's the calm that really reveals that. Otherwise, we could have wrong view forever. This is what samsara means. Because from the position of being under the influence of wrong view, it always seems to make sense to use wrong view to fix the problem. That's the very nature of wrong view, is to keep using wrong view to address the pain of wrong view. That's the dance that we're in most of the time. So I'll leave it here in case there's some questions or comments from your own practice you'd like to bring up or any other nuts and bolts questions. What comes to mind from what I've said tonight? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Absolutely thinking is involved in the practice. Because, of course, the Buddhist teachings are just thinking, right? I mean, it's verbal. They're conceptual maps, right? So we're doing two things. Like our intervention, right? We're a human being. And as a human being, we're not perfectly content, perfectly happy, perfectly secure. So we're trying to do something about that experience of being stressed to some degree. And so we come here and the what we're being told is, okay, so the the intervention is going to be twofold. We're going to bring in some new information, some thinking, right? Because we have to hear it so that we can repeat it to ourselves. But more than just hearing it and repeating it, we have to intellectually understand so we know how and when to repeat it back to ourselves and how to repeat it back to ourselves so we'll have it will have an its effect. Right? So absolutely we're using information and then we're using this training, what we generally call mindfulness, where we're learning how to track experience in and of itself in a non-conceptual way. So part of the information we're getting is how to do that non-conceptual tracking of experience. So we're not thinking about the breath coming in and thinking that the breath is going out. We're experiencing it coming in and coming out as sensation. And if there is a thought or an image about the breath that arises at that time, that's okay because as long as we're training the information we have is telling us that's just a thought. I don't need to inhabit the thought and I don't need to push that thought away. I just need to recognize that's just a thought. It's just a little blip of mental activity 
or just a little blip of a mental image. It's just that. It's not less than that. It's not more than that. So the information, if it's skillful, is information or thinking or concept that directs the mind toward things as they are in and of themselves in a continuous way. Because that's the universal solvent. But we need new information in order to value that mindful, continuous mindful awareness of things in and of themselves. And then in particular, even more than that, is like what's relevant. Because we could have a continuous mindful awareness of a lot of phenomena, right? I could be tracking the moment-to-moment experience of the visual experience of seeing the floor for years. But I might not have deep insight. So the Buddha basically says how to pay attention and what is really valuable to pay attention to. Like how it is that stress, the experience, the subjective experience of feeling like I'm somebody who's stressed out. How does that arise? What is that mechanism of that construction, that feeling of being a somebody who's overwhelmed by life? How does that get put together? That's a very interesting thing to be aware of in a non-conceptual way. Like how that experience comes to be. And equally valid as like what to use the mindfulness to pay attention to, how that experience of being somebody who is bound up with suffering, how that ceases or disappears or ends. That would be very useful to see me being, I'm really suffering right now, I'm really upset, I'm really hung up or caught up in something, to that not being true anymore. To see that moment to moment as a natural, impersonal unfolding would radically shift one's life if we saw that in a mindful way. So the Buddha talks about how to be attentive in a continuous way, in a steady way, and then what to do with that steady, continuous, non-judging awareness. So we need information, because otherwise we wouldn't value it. The information is initially inspires some the faith, like, well, that might help. I don't know what else to do. I'm going to try that. So we, we give it, because it takes some effort, because it's not the habit of the mind to pay attention in that way. Thanks. Yeah, Charlotte. Charlene, sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's different ways to articulate it, and, and it's nice to find one that really resonates, but what, what our heart really wants is to not be bound <coughs> or tied up with this dynamic of trying to get what we want and trying to get rid of what we don't want in life. It's like being an insecure animal, a vulnerable animal in an uncertain world, being identified with that is stressful. right? Because we're vulnerable to things that we're not in control of and there's no out. You could be more or less competent in this uncertain world, but there's no way to be free of the insecurity or the vulnerability as a beast in the world. So we want out of that. And the question, hating that or suicide is not, according to the Buddha, 
a way out of the dynamic of being a beast in a world we don't control. The way out is a shift of understanding. Like, there's directly realizing this is information. Now we have to activate this information directly in our experience, realizing that in this experience that I'm calling a beast in an insecure world, realizing there's no center to that experience. There's no me there in the way we reflexively impute a me or a center to that experience of being a beast in an insecure world. We assume that it's happening to me, but that's a construction of our mind, a very pervasive and sticky construction, but something we're actually thinking, but it's at such a subtle, pervasive level that we don't notice that mental activity of selfing, of imputing a somebody, a center to experience over and over again. So although we don't realize it, the heart longs to see through that, that illusion or that um, construction, that it's just a construction, it's not a reality. It's not actually the way it is. It just has that appearance that it's happening to me. So to be free of that, that's why we try things like gated communities. You know, we think we're going to get out of it that way or whatever way it might be. Um, but they always end up, we always end up frustrated by those attempts because it always involves a me that needs to be safe or protected, which we can never get in this kind of world. So it's nine, but we'll, of course, we'll pick it up next week. And remember, next week we'll have small groups. So it'd be nice just to reflect about path. Now, just as a little bit of way to think about this, there are many ways we inhabit paths. So you can just notice in your own lives how some paths, some ways of being, some ways of thinking about life lead to hell for us very clearly. And we can see it in other people, our friends. You know, we can observe them. Oh, they're on a path right now. They're inhabiting a particular point of view right now. And I can intuit or directly see the result of the path that they're inhabiting. And then, lo and behold, I'm also inhabiting a path right now. I'm walking a path, acting with a particular set of values or beliefs. And there are consequences to the path I'm inhabiting. I wonder what they are. Let me look. So that we see that, like taking up the Buddha's path, trying to understand it well enough that we can contemplate it and then activate it in our heart, it's not like a new thing. We're already playing with path. And so let's just get a little bit more sophisticated about the paths we're inhabiting, we're playing with, so we can make some more wise or skillful choices about path. And so that may be one of the things you talk about next week in the small group is like how not just one path, but how you see yourself at different moments in your life acting out some set of values, some belief system. And then what were the consequences of that particular set of values or belief system? And what did you learn from seeing it more clearly, maybe being less likely now to go there? Let's take a few seconds and let go of the words.
the Buddha said, whose minds are well developed in the factors for self-awakening, who delight in non-clinging, relinquishing grasping, resplendent, their effluence ended, they in the world are unbound. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.